0: you're listening to the christ church toronto podcast a recording of the sunday sermons from christ church toronto christ church toronto is a new church in toronto's east end that seeks to practice the ancient christian faith today we would love for you to join us in the future but until then please turn your attention to the scripture reading so obadiah went to meet ahab and told him and ahab went to meet elijah when ahab saw elijah ahab said to him is it you you troubler of israel and he answered i have not troubled israel but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the lord and followed the Baals. now therefore send and gather all israel to meet me at mount carmel and the 450 prophets of baal and the 400 prophets of asherah who eat at jezebel's table So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the ablation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sieves of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape, and they seized them, And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there.
1: Well, this is God's word. Let's pray, and we'll spend some time engaging with this passage. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we, your church, ask that you speak to us, each and every one of us personally and clearly, by the power of your Spirit, through this, your word. Speak to us that we might find ourselves more loyal to, committed to, more united to, your Son Jesus Christ, our elder brother and our hope. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the elements, or, um, one of the elements of the the musical Hamilton that always surprises me is the way that it's true to history and uh, the way that it ends. Even if you don't know the play Hamilton, I don't know if you know the character Alexander Hamilton. But he dies in a duel, ten paces apart, flintlock, pistols, and a decision is made to shoot at one another. But it's not just any duel, it's a duel with a friend of his that he made at King's College, a friend that he even practiced law with, and a friend who was part of the American Revolution. And maybe what's most crazy of all, and I forget it every time and even as I listen to Hamilton, Uh, the musical, as it comes to the end, it's still shocking to me, is he loses a duel to Aaron Burr, the sitting vice president of the US at the time. Listen, I don't fully understand why duels were necessary, but they were a pretty critical part of our society. They existed in Canada and in the US, they existed in Russia and in Europe, especially the higher up you were in society, the more dignity and pride you had to preserve the more common it was for a duel to be called out. Even painters like Edward Manet and the Russian poet Alexander Pushkin, they all engaged in duels. From the best of my research, Joseph Howell, the Nova Scotia politician who was part of the Macdonald cabinet in 1840, was a part of a duel. What we have in front of us is something of a duel. And it seems just as strange and just as primitive. It's a duel between God and the gods of the other nations. You may remember God's people are in a a peculiar predicament. There's been a civil war. The ten tribes in the northern kingdom have separated from the two tribes in the south the, the southern kingdom is unified around their capital city of Jerusalem, and they have preserved worship in, of the God of Israel. Worship of the God who had rescued his people out of Egypt and brought them to the choicest of lands. And the northern kingdom has been on a steep decline. And we learned last week that the king at this time of the northern kingdom's name is Ahab. And out of political expedience, he marries the daughter of the king of Sidon, and her name is Jezebel. We read in 1 Kings 15, verse 33, we read this, that Ahab did more to provoke the God of Israel to anger than all the kings before him. Not what you want to be known for. God had rescued his people out of Egypt, brought them into a promised land, and like a gardener pulling weeds out, he had instructed his people to de-weed the land of the worship of these various foreign gods these pagan gods and God's people had done that to it with a measure of success they had cleaned out the land of this false worship and yet as Ahab comes it's as though he is a gardener planting seeds of weeds all around the garden he begins this grand repaganization program he turns the people's hearts back towards the the primary deity Baal who was this fertility god Who controlled the rain and in an agrarian society it would make sense to worship the god who had power over the rain and the general life cycle. Worship of Baal was quite grotesque. I didn't go into much detail about this last week but it was quite common for temples to be set up where uh, particularly men at least as I've read history would go in and visit with a prostitute and what happened with the prostitute in the temple would be deemed a form of worship. All kinds of degrading practices this land that was supposed to be a promised land where justice flourished where mercy was experienced where there was a restitution when wrongs were done has become a toxic and polluted land there's no longer the special blessing residing on this land that there once was and as we stated last week we are Israel is now living in something of a pluralistic society something with some similarities to what we're living in where there's all these competing ideas in the public square trying to win out the day and the God of Israel calls forth a duel he, he calls forth a duel through his prophet Elijah he calls forth the witnesses and he wants to engage in a duel with Baal I just want to look at two things this morning I'll do my best not to go long I think I say that every week and it never works this might be the first week um But what I want to look at this morning is why the duel was needed, and then what the duel exposes, okay? So first, why is the the duel needed? Um, You know, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton had to have this duel because I believe Alexander Hamilton, um, I forget exactly what it was, but he, he gave a despicable opinion about Aaron Burr at a dinner party, and that's why the duel had to happen. Why does God need to have this duel with Baal? Why does the God of Israel need to square off in this battle with Baal? Now, I couldn't put the entire passage and the bulletin, but if you have your Bible and you let your eyes scroll up to the beginning of this chapter, chapter 18, verse 1, you would read that after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab, I will send rain upon the earth. Now, you might not, you might not remember, you might not have been here last week, but Elijah's first duty as a prophet was to go to Ahab and say, it's not going to rain. Uh, by my word, it will not rain in this land until I say so. And a drought has been over the land, and it's a horrendous drought. And the drought has resulted in uh, Ahab sending out his servant to go find any ounce of water just to try to protect some horses, some of the livestock. And God has now, through the prophet Elijah, decided that the punishment has been enough. And he is going to end the drought, he's going to bring rain. And so his prophet Elijah meets this servant in the temple, or in the, the king's house, named Obadiah, who's actually a very righteous man in a very troubling situation. And Obadiah brings him to Ahab. But there's a risk, is there not, if God brings the rain? Because if he brings the rain to this world, what is the sinful human heart likely to think? Well, if you had just been visiting with a temple prostitute, or if you had just offered up a sacrifice to Baal, what would you assume the second you felt the first raindrop? Aha, Baal was angry with us. Baal is no longer angry with us. The sacrifices work. Commitment to Baal is where it's at, and this is why God has to have a duel. He wants to say the punishment is enough, the rain is coming, but he doesn't want there to be any uncertainty. The rain is coming because he said so, not because of anything Baal could do. And this is why he calls forth the duel. He wants all the prophets to be present. He wants all of God's people to be present. We find out that there's 450 uh, prophets that live in the palace residence with Ahab and Jezebel. There's 450 prophets of Asherah. She was the female sort of of colleague to Baal at the time. But there's a need for a duel for a reason that goes much deeper than that. And you can see this in the passage in your bulletin. If you look at verse 21, what does Elijah say? He says this, How long are you going to go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And what happens? How do God's people respond? The people who had heard stories over and over again about God giving special blessings and promises to Abraham. The people who heard stories and celebrated over and over again the way God delivered them from their slavery in Egypt and brought them into this fertile land for them to thrive. How do God's people respond to this challenge? They're speechless. And this is critical, and this is why there has to be a dual because God's people weren't fully loyal to Baal. Maybe Ahab was, but God's people as a whole don't seem to be fully loyal to Baal, but they certainly aren't fully loyal to the God of Israel either. They're divided. There are people trying to have their cake and eat it too. They want to maintain a neutral position, but God's not going to let him. and so he calls forth this duel. Listen, this is This is no small point for us here in Toronto. The average Israelite is in a situation not unlike many of us and many of our neighbors. Because of the sort of general cultural religious pluralism that exists, that is promoted in our particular city, there is a assumption, a general disposition that we can remain somewhat neutral as it relates to our religious commitments and the fervor with which we hold them. And this is presented as something of a virtue to be neutral. If you don't believe me, go on almost any politician's social media account and what will you see? You'll see Diwali pictures. You'll see Ramadan pictures. It's seen as something good to be teaching to our kids that we ought to straddle the middle ground, have our cake and eat it too. We ought to remain neutral. And Elijah says that that's not going to be good enough. And so God calls forth this duel. He will not let you stand on neutral grounds. There is no room for neutrality. This week, I was sent a document that was passed around to Canadian chaplains. There was a panel committee that was uh, come together to advise about the future of chaplain ministries in the Canadian Armed Forces, but also generally in the healthcare world and in any other civil service realm. And they put out a report. The report was dated January of 2022. And in the document, the panel observes this. It says this, there are varying degrees of misogyny, sexism, and discrimination woven into the philosophies and beliefs of some mainstream religions currently represented in the cadre of chaplains in the Canadian Armed Forces. The document continues, the defense team cannot consider itself supportive of inclusivity when it employs as chaplains members of organizations whose values are not consistent with national defense ethics and values, even if those members express non-adherence to the policies of their chosen religion. The conclusion of this panel committee, how do they conclude? They recommend that chaplain forces are not to consider any longer for employment any chaplains affiliated with any of the religions that might not deemed fit proper, that don't proclaim this general neutrality over all these contentious things. You say, okay, that's government. I don't know why our militaries have chaplain, that is a complicated issue, okay. Well, how about you and your neighbors as you talk to them? How much do you feel like the general assumption your neighbors have is to do their best to neutralize and neuter your particular faith system to say, we're all out trying to do good. We're just generally out trying to care for and love one another. We live in a culture where there's tremendous pressure To be straddling that line, to feel neutral in the public spaces, to feel like we are all committed to being generally good at our core. And there comes a time where the God who created the heavens and the earth says he won't have it, and he calls forth a duel. He says you can't straddle these lines any longer. You have fundamental core commitments that you have to hold tightly to. He will not let Toronto paternalistically neuter religions that have been passed on for many generations and assuming we can all somehow be neutral as it engaged to these deeply held core commitments and God calls a duel. He won't let you be neutral forever. So don't be surprised if in the classroom or in family gatherings, at the workplace, or in gatherings with neighbors our Lord puts us in a situation where you square off in a duel it feels like you're ten paces apart and he's wondering how you are going to respond in this pluralistic age that Elijah is in the Lord needed a duel so that the people wouldn't straddle the middle of the fence and in the pluralistic age that we're living in don't be surprised if your workplace if your friends as you gather around to eat dinner together don't be surprised if you find yourself in the face of a duel where our Lord is not letting you straddle between two options forever. He demands undivided loyalty. And the way he's going to get it out of you is he's going to square you off, put you in something like a duel, where you're going to squirm. But he's doing this because he loves you. He's doing this because he loves his people in this passage. He wants them to have undivided loyalty to the God who gives life. This is why there has to be a duel, because this is how loyalty will birth forth. But now, let's ask, what does the duel reveal? So the duel between Hamilton and Alexander Burr, you know, reveals this sort of preservation of, of, of reputation and status, it shows the willingness of these two men to risk their lives, to come to some sort of resolution about a conflict. But what does the duel, in this case, reveal? And I can't help but think it reveals to us the logic of false religions. It reveals to us the logic of false religions. Where do we see this? Well, let's think about how the duel works, okay? There's two bulls. Elijah said, you know what? You guys won the coin toss. You pick first. You pick whichever bull you would like. We're going to make a sacrifice. We're going to call upon our God to consume the sacrifice with fire, to eat up the bull as a pleasing gift to him. Whoever, whoever's God sends fire wins. The deck is stacked in the favor of Baal. They're on Mount Carmel. This is like home field advantage home turf. He has 850 prophets gathered. Elijah is alone a representative of the God of Israel. Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first. They select the bull that they want, and they cry out to their Baal. And maybe in one of the most tragic parts of this passage, they cry, and they cry, and they cry, and what do they hear? Nothing but an echo of their own voices. And they're limping around the altar, still no response. As a kid, I absolutely loved this passage that Elijah resorted to trash-talking. Somehow this became sort of a philosophy of life, that I was allowed to trash-talk other people. The Lord straightened me out later on. But he says, you know, maybe God's busy. Maybe he's tied up with other things. Maybe he's vacationing. Maybe he's in the washroom. Maybe he's out of toilet paper. You know, maybe he's busy. Keep crying louder. Maybe you'll wake him up from his nap. But in the face of him being silent, what does this worship of Baal cost these prophets? As their fervent prayers evaporate into nothingness, as the echoes begin to disappear, they work themselves into a frenzy. There's a rave-like environment. And the last resort is they must cut themselves. They've got to bleed. And they've got to bleed to the point that they are gushing. Because this is what false religion does. It bleeds you dry. You see, this is the logic of false religion, and hear me closely. The logic of false religion is this the logic is that you actually have good and pure intentions. You, the worshiper, long to find God and be in tune with God. And God is the one who's capricious, God is the one who's hiding, God is the one you have to fight to earn attention from. This is how all false religion works. But let me tell you when the silence comes, Things escalate. All you have left to do is bleed, to show how serious you are. You can only escalate so far. Maybe I'll illustrate it uh, this way. I don't know if anyone knows the the novelist David Foster Wallace, American novelist, kind of part of the um, post-modern stream of thoughts. Difficult books to work through, but is known as one of the most important uh, sort of writers contemporary writers. He gave an address to a university in Canyon, Canyon College, Liberal Arts University in Ohio, and he has a quote that you may have heard me quote before, but I'm going to read to you an extended portion of the quote that I think makes something of this point, point. and he's going to go after this logic of unbelief. The logic of false religions is always that you have to earn God's attention, but the problem with that is God continues to be more and more silent, more and more distant, the false God, and you continue to fight to earn his attention. Here's how Wallace addresses the commencement address to these students. He says this, Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He continues. Listen to this closely. Again, this is David Foster Wallace. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in for life, then you'll never have enough. You'll feel you never have enough, and it's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power. You'll feel weak and afraid. You'll need even more power over others to keep fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. What is Wallace saying? And he's saying it better than any preacher could. He's saying, sure, this logic works for all kinds of false religions, this, this logic of false religion works for all kinds of formalized and institutionalized religions, but it's a principle that works deeper in these smaller religions we make around money and sexual allure and intellect. We worship idols in hopes that we can get their blessing. We offer to them sacrifices in hope they would grant to us a blessing, but eventually all, idols, all, <clears throat> all worship of idols comes to the place where you hear nothing but silence. And in the face of silence, the demand is for sacrificing more and more and more. Let me illustrate it this way in case you're not following. Worship the goddess of reputation will result and require you to make sacrifices to obsessively manicure your image, your public and private image. If you worship the goddess of reputation, you will have to sacrifice all times of conflict. Because conflict might put you in tension with somebody and it might harm your reputation. And so you'll have to make an offering, a sacrifice to the goddess of reputation by absorbing the pain of conflict, never actually working towards what is right and just in your own life. You have to absorb it for the sake of your reputation. You hope that by absorbing it, the goddess of reputation will bless you with that feeling of a good reputation. However, as you and I both know, conflict will arise. You will not be able forever to keep a perfect reputation with all parties. And you will find yourself in situations where you have to sacrifice more and more and more and more until eventually you are sacrificing your very ethics. You're triangulating and stabbing people in the back, doing everything you can to fix and structure your relationships in such a way that you might have a good reputation until what happens? you and I both know, eventually you decide, what do you know, God transferred me to another place. You leave your friend network, you reinvent yourself, you disappear, you have to die to a portion of yourself because the goddess of reputation left you silent. I hope I'm making sense. Let me use another example. Let's say you worship the goddess of achievement. She's got a beautiful, you know, beautiful little statue at your house, and her name is Achievement, and she tells you this, if you just sacrifice, if you just take pleasure and recreation, and all the fun that all of your friends are having. If you just lay them on the altar and make it, sacrifice them, I will bless you with that feeling of achievement. You'll get the piece of paper that says you have a degree. It'll say you're the top of the class. You will achieve and achieve and achieve. But what's going to happen? A time's going to come where you feel overwhelmed and you feel stuck. Maybe when you have, I don't know, your first kid. And you think, my goodness. All I achieved today was I managed to feed this kid and change her diaper. Wow. And you begin to feel worthless, and you begin to feel as though you're not achieving, and you go to your goddess and you say, goddess of achievement, I need that feeling, I need your blessing to come upon me to know that I achieve something, that I matter, that I've accomplished something. And you sense the goddess of achievement saying, well, sacrifice your child. Neglect doing your fatherly duties, your motherly duties, they parenting, it's nice. You've got to achieve. You've got to, you've got to ignore that, that what you know is the right thing to do. You've got to lay that on the altar. Lay your child on the altar. Go back to work. Work 90 hours. Neglect them. But you know what? If you do that, I promise you my blessing. The goddess achievement says, you, you'll feel like you did something. And they'll say, you achieved and you were a parent. The blessing will pour upon you. But you and I both know that doesn't last long. What are you going to achieve after that? Life's a mess with your family. Relationships begin to fall apart. You don't care because the goddess achievement might give you more blessing. You continue to destroy relationship after relationship after relationship. You destroy your body and you sacrifice your very body, your personal health to the goddess of achievement, all in the name that she might give you that blessing, that sweet feeling like you matter, like you accomplish something. Worship the goddess of achievement and eventually she'll demand blood. I could go on and on, but I hope you get my point and Wallace's point. This is the logic of false religion. The logic is the assumption that you have good motives and that as you pursue the God who gives blessing, as you aggressively pursue them, it's it's on God to reveal himself or herself, and the goddess is capricious and must be chaste, and you must continue to escalate the sacrifices to get the blessings of these false gods. This is the logic, and this is why the worshipers of Baal in the face of silence resort to cutting themselves. There's nothing left to do. They must bleed. They've got to get his attention, but they're met with silence, And as many of you know, David Foster Wallace, not long after giving that commencement address where he so nicely unpacks this logic and this power, he took his own life. If this is the logic of a false religion, like you assume that you want God to be near and God must be hiding, well, what is the logic of true religion in this passage? What does Elijah say? Verse 30, come near to me. What does this Elijah, this representative of God, do? The altar that God's people had torn down had to infuriate God. They tore down the altar. What does he do? He rebuilds it, 12 stones representing each of the 12 tribes. Then he asks for these four jars, three rounds of dousing, four times three, that's 12. I don't know how how many fires you've made, but if anyone tells you that they know a secret to making a good campfire, it's to water the wood they're lying to you. Why is there 12 jars, 12 rounds of water dumped on this wood? Elijah's making a point to the people. He's saying, you did nothing to earn this fire coming down from heaven. In fact, your contributions to what's about to happen are one of these buckets being poured on. Each one of your tribes has done nothing but quelled and and cooled God's uh, righteous fire from coming down. You've angered God. You've made it harder, at least by world standards, for God to seem to work and want to come and to give his presence and his blessings. But what does Elijah pray? Let it be known that you are God and I am your servant. Answer me, O Lord, verse 37, that this people may know you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. This is the logic of true religion, a gracious God who is always making the first step. A gracious God that is always moving towards people who are on a dead sprint away from him. This is the logic of true religion. God's attention can't be earned, but it can be graciously given. And it indeed is time and time again in his holy scriptures. Sacrifice, the, these, the, the goal of sacrifice isn't to win over God's attention. Sacrifices are a righteous response from the God who gives you his attention. Calls to repentance are not calls that if you repent, quite possibly God might draw near and bless you. Calls to repentance are birthed out of a gracious God who draws near when you don't deserve it and gives you his blessing. And your natural response is then to repent. This is the logic of true religion. Not clean up your act and then God will draw near. But God has drawn near and he evokes you. He evokes you to live for him the Lord the Lord he is God the people say the Lord he is God the Lord he is God friends Christians people who've had commitments to Christ most of your life how long will you go on thinking if you could just get a straight series of quiet times if you could just get rid of that one habitual sin longer maybe then your prayers will be worthy to go to the Lord's ears and he will answer that's the logic of false religion read your Bible it's great Get rid of get rid of addicted sins. It's great. Do everything you can But that's not the god who makes the first step He is always moving towards you. He is always coming towards you. You can't run from him Why don't you just admit that you're hiding? He is constantly in grace moving towards you. He loves you. He's calling you even some of you now My wife's teaching the kids so i'm going to get an earful i'll wrap it up with this verse 40 Even as uh, poor Sarah read it, you know, she chokes as she, it's not the ending we wanted. God wins, and he slaughters all the prophets. What's going on in verse 40? Why do they have to die? Well, I was thinking about this just from a logical standpoint, and I think we can conceive, even in our own cultural and political moment, that it would be ethically permissible, maybe even virtuous, if someone had a chance to get rid of a dictator maybe even a russian dictator a russian speaking dictator if someone had a chance to do that we would say that is good because it results in saving of lives and stopping of unnecessary suffering ethically this is what must happen and if we can conceive of that for a dictator in our world and we assume that this suffering that we're experiencing in this world is all all there is then what should we make of prophets who are pulling god's people away from hearing his blessing prophets who are slashing themselves and bleeding on sacrifices and calling others to join them in this passage ends with a deadly warning about the seriousness of false religion but maybe maybe if we keep thinking about the slaughtering of the prophets there's maybe another question that needs to ask and it's this why do they get slaughtered and god's people get grace again why do they get slaughtered and god's people receive god's kindness again Why aren't they judged? How many times is the Lord going to be kind to his people? And you know what's most amazing at all in this mysterious ending of this book? Is that we learn that for God's people, it's not their blood that he demands. For God's people, he's willing to bleed for them. He's greater than these prophets. He's willing to send his son to give his very life to give up who he is, to lay on the altar to be that sacrifice. And because of that one sacrifice who these people don't yet fully know of, because of that one sacrifice, you, I, all of Israel, we can turn afresh to God and say, the Lord, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, the Lord, he is God. Though we deserve judgment, we're met again with grace and turn from our sins and follow him with loyalty. Friends, this is our God. Grace upon grace, upon grace to his people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see the false gods that we're worshiping and the ways in which we worship you as though you are a false god. Somehow, if we work ourselves up into a frenzy, you're going to give us your attention. Father, have mercy on us. We know not fully what we do. But even in this moment, as we sense you being kind towards us, moving towards us in your grace, giving us the blessing of your presence. Father, deepen our loyalty to you. Help us to understand more fully the sacrifice your Son made for us, the way he bled for us, so that we don't have to. And Father, in a mysterious world that includes your judgment on those who are pulling people astray, make us a people profoundly grateful for the grace we've received. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristchurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristchurchToronto.ca.